0: This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
1: How professional
0: Mexican... But are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think... Reform trends in Argentina... Right. and that's what we'll happened... role at all in the NAFTA negotiation.
2: In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. It is the first time in the history of Latin America that a country has a president and foreign minister that are both women. Bolivia is going through one of the most important transition processes in its modern history. Not only because women are leading this transition, but also fraudulent presidential elections in October made the Bolivian people set enough to Evo Morales' intention to run for a four consecutive term. As a result, With growing pressure from different sectors inside and outside of the country, Evo decided to resign and a new interim government took over. My name is Moises Rendon. I'm a fellow of the Americas program and director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. And to help us better understand all these moving dynamics here with me are Jorge Otuto Quiroga, former president of Bolivia and international representative of the current interim government. Ambassador Jaime Aparicio, who leads the Bolivian representation at the OAS, and Margarita Seminario, our new deputy director in the Americas program. Thank you all for being here with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: We have a lot to unpack here. And and I want to start by demystifying some of the things that the international community still gets run in Bolivia. And I wanna to turn to you, Tutu. I mean, in some way, many international observers did not expect Evo Morales to resign as president of Bolivia. But after this fraudulent election, Sebo's credibility fell apart, including losing support from the Bolivian military. In a country where its history is full of cupetas, many have been violent ones, many still have questions whether Bolivia had a cupeta or not. So I wanted to ask you, what does the international community get from from the Bolivian recent events? Thank you,
0: Moisés. I think the first thing they get wrong is they perceive Evo Morales to be a democratic leader. And just like in Venezuela, he had original legitimacy when he first won power in 2006. But uh, starting in 2013, he uh, unraveled a slow motion coup that ended up with fraudulent elections. Why do I say this? In Bolivia, we changed the constitution at the request of Mr. Morales, and we specified two terms for presidency, just like in the U.S. or Brazil or or Argentina. In 2013, finishing his second term, Morales pulled a trick with his judges, servile judges, that stated that the first mandate did not count because Bolivia was a republic, and they had changed the denomination to a plurinational state. Imagine if Obama would have said, instead of being the United States of America, we're going to be the America's United States, and you change the name, and then decide you get an extra term based on that. We've been a state since 1825 when Simon Bolivar came and gave us freedom. So that was a little trick they used in 2013, and the international community stayed quiet. The economy was booming because of the gas prices and the projects that Morales had inherited, with sky-high prices driven by China demand. So people in Bolivia said, all right, and he got a third term. In the middle of the third term, he asked for a referendum, he himself, to extend one more mandate. And Bolivia voted no, despite a massive campaign with the use and abuse of state resources. So he was refused a potential fourth term, which would have been for him a third plurinational term. But forget the confusion, it was a fourth term. And then despite that, he got a ruling that said that being a tyrant, Running for re-election forever was a human right supposedly protected by the OAS. That's what it is. The Nicaragua trick was exactly what Ortega did in 2009. The international community started questioning that a little bit, but not enough. And then what we've learned in Nicaragua, if somebody breaks the constitution on the term limits to stay in power, they later shoot and kill young people in Managua to cling to that power. And exactly what happened in Bolivia. Somebody breaks the constitution to stay for a third term then tries to get a fourth term, breaking his own constitution, disowning the results of his own referendum, then guess what they fraudulently try to steal the election with massive documented verified fraud in the oes report which morales asked for morales invited the oes he asked for a binding audit and then when he doesn't like their results he says oh they're so bad and the oes is a puppet of the empire and all those things that they're used to now the succession took place two things before i close on this one is what is the role of the military? It was, it's was been exemplary in my country since 1982. I know what you're saying, that we've had many military rulers, but since 1982, we've had democracy. I was finishing college, and we always had democracy. And in good times, tough times, difficult times, we've always kept it, including a major crisis in 2005 when we had to get to a judge to assume an interim presidency, Rodríguez Belsé. Same thing here. Yes, there were rumblings of military action stirred up by Evo Morales. General Calimán is quite a name He called towards the end, when Evo was about to resign, he suggested that Evo resign. People made a big deal out of that. This man was shining Morales' shoes for two years, doing whatever he wanted, going to the Venezuelan embassy to take instructions, and the Cuban embassy to take instructions. He did that to help Morales' narrative that there was a military calling for his resignation on November 10th. On November 11th, the guy talked to Evo Morales five times. This general talked to Morales five times, and he pulled the military off the street, and they wanted an unrest, take over the streets to try to see if there's a way for Evo to return or for the military to take over. That military, President Añez, the first thing she did, she yanked him from the armed forces. He's being processed and investigated for all the damage he has done. And I'll close with, with the following. You mentioned something very important. Yes, Latin America, we're very machistas. <laughs> but all the fascists, all the coup mongers, all the racist people, it's all men. Women, by definition, are not. Name a fascist, coup monger, golpista women in the history of Latin America. I can name Maduro, Chavez, Ortega, Castro, Videla. Yes. And never women. We have, for the second time in the history of my country, a women president, Janine Añez. And for the first time, and this is kind of embarrassing, for the first time ever, a good friend of Jaime's, Karin Longarich, who's a foreign minister. I asked CSIS to Google and tell me if in the history of Latin America we have ever had two women president and foreign ministers, who by definition are not coup mongers. So it's something that makes me very proud. I have three daughters, and they have a mirror to look into for the future of their country and see that women can also be president and foreign minister.
2: That's a great point. You know, we like to say, too, that the Venezuelan crisis is a man-made crisis. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a woodman-made crisis. (laughs) To you, uh, uh, Ambassador Aparicio, I mean, after Morales resigned, a relatively unknown Bolivian senator became president, right? And she's Jenny Agnes. And she's now serving as the interim president until free and fair elections are held. And you were appointed no, to be you know, the interim representative to the OAS. So I wanted to ask you, what is next for the interim presidency? And how, how are you guys
3: thinking to get there? Great question, Moises. Thank you for having me. I think that the main goal of the president is to call for fair and free elections as soon as possible. So once you have an objective, a very clear objective that it's to have elections, you have to work on that. So that's our goal. The first thing is to have uh, an electoral tribunal that people could trust. It's not easy because what many people in Bolivia like Tuto or Senator Ortiz achieved in convincing the Congress, which two-thirds, belong to Evo Morales. To have an electoral tribunal and to call to elections and to invalidate the previous elections because of the fraud was really an achievement Uh, we are very proud. So we have now the president of the electoral tribunal, Mr. Romero, who has an extensive experience in all Latin America working for all the electoral institutions. Now the second challenge would be to conform the rest of the board of the Electoral Council, of the Electoral Tribunal in Bolivia. Those negotiations, I think, are going to start this weekend in Bolivia. So uh, the, the president has to, once there is a tribunal, they w- we will have a date for the elections. Probably would be by the end of April or something like that. That would be the first stage. What the president is doing although her objective is the new elections, is trying to defend Bolivia from the attacks that we are receiving every day. The first narrative was saying that there was a coup d'etat in Bolivia, what was absolutely crazy, and now nobody's talking of, of golpe. It was clearly explained that what we had in Bolivia was a transition, the president resigned, he abandoned the presidency and went to Mexico, all these things you know. The second thing now is they are calling for racial violence in Bolivia. It's a new mantra. <laughs> and they are using that narrative to attack. But yesterday at the Permanent Council, uh, Tuto was uh, speaking there, and we announced that we... Invited the Human Rights Commission to Bolivia to do a visiting loco. In fourteen years, Mr. Evo Morales never invited the Inter-American Commission to go to Bolivia, and we signed an agreement that we want an investigation on what happened, and but a real investigation because we had a problem that there was a preliminary document from the Inter-American that it's a real shame. It was. Completely ideologically based, some of the uh, the commissioner of Peru, who is the, the rapporteur for Bolivia, was also approving this document in which they say things that are absolutely not true. They say that there were killings, that there was racial violence and... So we said we want an investigation, a real investigation, with forensic experts, with people that know about ballistic and all these things. So we have to have clear the president and the minister of foreign affairs want people to an international commission to see what happened those days and to be fair and realize that there was 21 days of Pacific rebellion in Bolivia, citizens, young people, indigenous, that obliged Mr. Morales to leave. And then there was violence from armed groups controlled by Evo Morales. So we want the world to know that and to stop this narrative. The extreme left and the famous uh, Grupo de Puebla, like Mexico, now Argentina, Cuba, Nicaragua, all these groups, and their contacts in the academic world and in the universities and in the NGOs, sometimes in the media, are creating this false narrative.
2: Yes, thank you, Ambassador. Margarita, as I said, she's the new deputy of the Americas program. It's great to have you, Margarita. The international community play a key role in Bolivia right now because as President Quiroga and Ambassador Aparicio mentioned, thanks to the OAS report is where you know, this came to light and Evo Morales found himself in a position of pressure, right? But moving forward, <laughs> the international community will continue to play a key role to help Bolivian to host free and fair elections, right? But we only have about three, maybe four months left before an election is held. And you have a very important background on election processes and what needs to be done when it comes to making sure that free and transparent elections are held. So from your point of view, what is the U.S. and the international community's role to make sure to help the Bolivian people achieve its goal, which are, again, hold free and fair elections?
1: I think they can contribute to electoral integrity. And what that really means is, on one side, make sure that the international electoral principles are being followed, and in terms of electoral observation, and bring to play institutions like Organization of American States, who usually brings electoral observers from Uniore the Electoral Management Bodies Organization of the Mm -hmm. Americas, and also the Carter Center, European Union. They're definitely planning to, to play a role. I think that it's more about ensuring that they're coordinating and that they are not just flying in and out, but that they're actually there for a meaningful amount of time. I also think that once the Electoral Tribunal is uh, fully in place, there is a prime opportunity to provide them with technical assistance and accompaniment. And there are some key subject areas for that. One is, I would say, electoral security, putting in place parameters to mitigate security instances, perhaps a parallel vote tabulation, a quick count would be also important to have in place. And I would put at the top of the list, actually, to work on the TREP, the preliminary results transmission, that there are experts in the Latin America region who can definitely provide this kind of accompaniment, uh, probably from electoral management bodies themselves.
2: Yeah, great. One of the problems that I've seen in, in Venezuela and other countries in the region is foreign interventions from key countries like Russia, Cuba, Venezuela itself in Bolivia. So Tuto an Ambassador, when, when you think about having free and fair elections, what type of concerns do you have in terms of things like fake news or uh, disinformation campaigns or other type of tools that we know that there are actors in the war, especially in countries like Venezuela and Cuba, using in processes like elections? Is, is that a concern for you guys? I think, has two, two quick
0: things here. First, on the international front, we have to understand that it's beyond fake news. I don't mind seeing fake news on social media that I can counteract and give my own version. The problem is when you have authoritarian tyrannies and TV broadcasts and newspapers provide you fake news every day like in Venezuela and Bolivia. In my country, just about every TV network was owned by the government or by Venezuelan business people, quote-unquote, that had bought these TV networks or newspapers. So the fake news was on the front page of newspapers and primetime and TV news. Just like in Venezuela, you know that the people in resistance have to carry around three cell phones and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook Live, everything, because you cannot have access to the news media. This highlights a bigger point. In the last few years and in this month, we are at a critical juncture in the Americas. We are going to decide whether we're going to have in the Americas four Cubas or none. Cuatro Cubas o ninguna. Four Cubas or freedom and democracy. Why? Because you know that the project that mixed the, the Cuban know-how, repressive authoritarian Cuban know-how, with the Venezuelan PDVSA how to pay, with the PDVSA checkbook, seized the hemisphere, In 2008, I've been fighting this for a long time. They had 22 out of 34 votes at the OAS. They owned the secretary general. They could close down TV networks in Venezuela, and the OAS with insulsa would clap. In Ecuador, they could do the same thing. I I, I went around. I I went to your country in 2007. They declared me persona non grata when Chavez lost the referendum. Their database is not so good because they did it again in 2017, but (laughs) I'll go back again and and keep at it. So, this is what was at stake. Four, Four Cubas or none? the original one the island, which is a gerontocracy, quasi-nonagenarian people that are older than my father, whose driver license has been removed for years. They do not let him drive a car because he's already 86. And these people, Castro, Machado, Ventura, Valdez, these names in Cuba are older than my dad and they're driving four countries. Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and they were using my country and there's a furious counterattack. In these days of unrest, it was not spontaneous. We had Cuban operatives, castristas, maduristas with bagfuls of cash passing around money so people, agitators, could come in, attack a liquefied natural gas plant to blow it up and it could have caused a disaster that would have made 9-11 look like small peanuts. It could have had tens of thousands of people could have died. We were facing that. A guy from the FARC shot and killed with heavy artillery, two people in Montero, Santa Cruz, in, in my country. I was coming back from the Mercosur summit. I had never flown in a plane with a FARC member, and Mr. Molares was in the back with five policemen being taken to high-security prison because he was with uh, heavy guns shooting people in the street. So the counterattack will be furious in my country because they realize that they never thought, Cuba, I mean, that they would lose Bolivia. We always thought, I thought always, we could save the father to save the daughter. Save Venezuela, restore democracy in Venezuela, the land of Bolívar. So Bolivia, Bolívar's daughter, could be rescued. Now it's, it's gonna flip. I think now we're inspiring Venezuela and we're gonna continue in this fight. And I will personally stay at it till Venezuela's free. Jaime knows the people in Nicaragua. We're gonna help them regain their freedom. Yeah. And I will not stop until I go to Havana, Cuba. I was deported after four hours when I was going to see Rosa Maria Payá, when I go to her father's grave in Havana and put a flower and tell him Cuba Libre is not something you ask for at a bar, sarcastically. It'll be a real clamor. So that is an important thing for uh, what we're doing internationally. And I think people should understand that what's going on in Bolivia, it is decisive in terms of whether we have a hemisphere with democracy and freedom everywhere, or whether we have a Cuba here, Venezuela there, Nicaragua there and then try to come back through some friends that will appease them in Mexico or Argentina. I think that's why my country has become
2: ground zero for the battle of freedom and democracy in the hemisphere. No question, it's a great point. Thank you, President, for making that point. And Venezuela will always be thankful because I know you're being always on the front line when yeah. it comes to helping the Venezuelan people. Ambassador, we had a massive protest in Bolivia after the presidential elections in October. Those protests were, in its vast majority, peaceful. The Bolivian people came out to the streets and were very peaceful. However, I wanted to ask if you have any security concerns when it comes to what is coming next in the next few months, but also looking at the election process itself, because as you mentioned. I mean, there are groups in Bolivia. Bolivia is also a country that produces a lot of cocaine. There's a lot of drug tra- trafficking. And security has always been one of the top issues in Bolivia's recent history. So what, what type of concerns do you have of internal security stability
3: in this country in the short term? We are very concerned because the people that it's supporting Morales is well-financed, very coordinated. Unlike us, that we are struggling each country like Venezuela or Nicaragua or or Ecuador, they are very coordinated, they are well financed, and they have all this capacity to create narratives with like the Russian channel, Telesur, the channels in Bolivia, they are very well organized. Now, what happens with Morales is going to Argentina? Although the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Argentina was very clear that's a good thing that he said that he can't do politics and can't create problems in Bolivia because he's a guest of the Argentinian government. But we know that in Argentina, at this point, for example, most of the famous piqueteros and that group called La Campora, the group of the former President Kirchner, are very active. In the last two months, they were 24 hours dedicated... attack Bolivia. You could see now in all the social media, they replaced the warriors that Morales had that were very ineffective because they didn't know how to write. It was like a joke, that thing. Now the Argentinians are much better. They send a human rights commission organized by the extreme left in Argentina, and they want to provoke in Bolivia. They are creating a narrative that in Bolivia, they spell Morales because he's an indigenous leader. They have this other narrative of the indigenous violence or racial violence. So our concern is that Evo Morales has no chance to go back to power in a democratic way, at least in (laughs) these next five years. His only chance, and he said in a video that was uh, taped, he said his only chance is to create chaos in Bolivia, to create disorder, and to return thanks to his people in El Chapare that still have the cocaine business, the money. So it's a concern. I think that we have to be very vigilant in Bolivia because it's not going to be an easy task to have elections. Morales is not interested in uh, new elections.
2: Do you want to add, present? Yeah,
0: two two quick things, uh, Moises. One on cocaine. I'm going to age myself here. I remember in the 80s, my favorite actor, Al Pacino, and this, I was always there on Friday night when his movies came out, and Scarface comes out. And I'm sitting in the theater, and here comes Al Pacino, the Cuban in Miami, that decides to bypass the Colombians and comes to Bolivia straight to my home department Cochabamba to my home city to buy the cocaine uh, from the Bolivians and I was sitting in a theater going oh my god, they're going to figure out I'm Bolivian and I'm watching this. (laughs) Well, Colombia had no cocaine, no coca. Pablo Escobar tired of buying base paste from the coca in the Chapare that Evo Morales has been leading for the last 35 years. He is no longer the president of Bolivia as a country, but he is still the president after 35 years of the coca growers in Chapare where 90% of the production read all the UN reports that he himself has published goes to cocaine that goes to Argentina that comes to Mexico to Chapo Guzman and gets put in to the U.S. A small little secret Bolivia has legalized the production of cocaine under Evo Morales 7,700 hectares almost 20,000 acres that will at least make 100 tons of pure high-quality cocaine And Evo Morales always spouts off speeches against neoliberal right-wings. Let me tell you where the capital in the world of neoliberalism is. Chapari. Free production, unlimited, no regulation, no taxation, no government, and free trade agreements worldwide for the cocaine that gets produced. And that is the problem that we're facing. And after 14 years, by law, knowing that the traditional coca for the traditional consumption is from Yungas, an area in the west of La Paz, in Chapare is only used for cocaine, and he legalized that production. And in there, you have people from the FARC, you have people from Venezuela. The original shipments of cocaine to Venezuela and Maiquetilla were not coming from Colombia, they came from, from Bolivia. So that is a focus of concern in terms of security. That will clearly be something we have to address. The second point to demystify this thing about indigenous I realize that when you look at Jaime Aparicio or Evo Morales, you can clearly tell that Morales has got more indigenous blood than Jaime Aparicio or myself. With ancestry and 23 and me, I can tell you, the Quirogas in the 1850s, they didn't come married. They mingled with our women and here we came all, I don't know why I came out of the blender this way, but I can tell you I got between 25% to 28% indigenous blood. Now, clearly Morales has more, but he doesn't speak an indigenous language. He used indigenous issues. And imagine if Jaime Aparicio, sitting here, looking like a British banker with his glasses. (laughs) Imagine if he had, gone after an indigenous lawyer who opposed his re-election in the Constitutional Tribunal in 2013, like Gualberto Cusi, who was here.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And if Jaime Aparicio had said, oh, you opposed my re-election, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take you out of your job. I'm going to reveal to the world that you're HIV, AIDS positive. I'm going to take away your medical insurance. I'm going to handcuff you to a stretcher and bring you to the Congress to beat the crap out of you judicially. If Jaime Aparicio had done that, He'd be hanging from every lamppost in this city for being a racist, homophobic, destructive person. Evo Morales did that to mm-hmm. the man that you saw, there, Alberto Cusi, a dignified Aymara lawyer, who in 2013 said, you only have two terms, you cannot run for office forever, and he was prosecuted with complete fury. And the second point, and I'll close with this. Evo Morales is the only president in the history of my country that tried to build a road through a national park, affecting thousands of indigenous people. A road through a park is like a cigarette in your lungs, not good for the environment. And this man that would come here, speaking of Madre Tierra and the environment and the parks, is the only one to try to tear down a park, move displace thousands of indigenous people, with a road at twice the price with Brazilian lavajato, corrupt funding to extend the areas of cultivation for the coca to make more cocaine. If Jaime Aparicio had done that, You'd have the DEA after him. You'd have transparency after him. Now, Evo Morales does it, and he comes in saying, I'm indigenous, and he speaks less Quechua than I do. And then people bought into this whole thing when a tyrant is a tyrant. And if a man of Aymara origins, like Evo Morales does to Alberto Cusi, an Aymara lawyer with HIV AIDS, and sues him and destroys his life and tries to destroy a national park. You ought to question him, no matter if he's Aymara or white or mestizo, because if you care about the environment, if you care about indigenous rights, you cannot give Evo Morales a license to go against those based on the fact that he claims to be an indigenous leader. Yeah,
2: great points, President. Thank you. I just wanted to put one more last question quickly, within one minute, if you can answer we have three months left, maybe four. Not much time right. to get there for free and transparent elections. What do you think the US and international community should be doing right now to help your cause, to make sure that the Bolivian people have free elections in the country? And not in six months, not in a year, but in this three, four month window that we have left.
3: And I'm gonna start with you Ambassador. I think that in my case, my role is to have the OAS as soon as possible there in a technical mission before the traditional observation mission, but we need let's say an immediate mission from the OAS, from United Nations, from the European Union. I think their are negotiations. We can't fix all the problems in the electoral system in Bolivia, as you said, the register, but we can create trust and we can modify some of the things that people would believe that this is a real and fair election. So I think that the key issue now is because people trust a good president of the electoral tribunal. The OAS, since today, If it's possible, the European Union, the United Nations, and of course, as you say, the Carter Center, the CAPEL, and other organizations. We need all the help we can get. USAID, Canada, financing and helping this, I think it's going to happen, would be also very important. Thank you.
1: USAID can play a fantastic role, and they should. They have pre-competed mechanisms, meaning there's no need to get tangled up on bureaucracy. There are mechanisms in place to provide rapid response. You have institutions like the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute, and the International Foundation for Electoral Assistance who can provide the accompaniment for this electoral process. Just don't get tangled up in bureaucracy.
0: Well, thank you, Moisés. Thank you, Margarita and Jaime. We need the best, most transparent, best-run elections in the history of Latin America after the most fraudulent, most blatantly rigged elections in the history of Latin America. We can do that. We need vocales, the people that run the electoral court. We will be selecting them in the next few uh, weeks. The, the head is a widely recognized as an electoral expert. We need a clean registry so people vote, only the ones that are alive, and they only vote once. <laughs> And you need a computer system that allows us to tabulate the vote. The myth that Morales propagated was that the late vote that came from rural areas is the one that flipped the election. When he was getting 140% of the vote in some of those places to rig the election, with what margarita said, in today's world, all you need is 34,000 places with a cell phone picture transmitted automatically, and in one hour, you will know that we need UN funding, we need OAS funding, we need help from the EU to be able to do that. Because the claim that rural areas do not have access to cell phones here, we are in the podcast. This is me sitting on the top of the uh, Huayna Potosi at over 20,000 feet. I can WhatsApp this picture in half a second from the top of the highest mountain in Bolivia. You can do that on election day, send pictures, of the ACTAS and the registration of of the votes instantaneously. So we finish voting at 6, and by 7 p.m., we can know who's president and who's the Congress. You can do that in any country if we get the funding, the help. And I'm sure the next election, Moises, we will have four international observers in every single voting booth in in Bolivia because we are on the spotlight, and we intend to use it. And keep us on your radar and come down uh, to Bolivia when we have the next best, most transparent election
2: ever. Thank you so much all for being here and I'm sure we're going to fight hard to have a free elections in Bolivia so thank you. Thank you my sister. Thank you.
1: thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening
2: to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the Americas
0: program page at csis.org.